Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, thank you. Um, if you could, if those of you who are still standing, if you could make your way to your seats. I hope you will. You were able to find a seat. Um, thank you so much for joining us for this panel discussion on the costs and unintended consequences of beneficial ownership reporting. My name is Diego Zuluaga, and I am a policy analyst at the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. The Cato Institute, as many of you will know, is a public policy research institution dedicated to promoting the principles of individual liberty, free markets, and peace. And the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives within Cato explores that mission in monetary and financial issues, and our objective is to propose viable alternatives that will make the monetary system more stable and freer and more conducive to general prosperity. And in line with that set of goals, we have put together this event to discuss what is really a very timely issue, namely the collection and reporting of beneficial ownership, or ownership data for small businesses in the United States. Um, of course, proposals in this regard come in the way of nearly 50 years of Bank Secrecy Act-related legislation and uh, a set of regulatory requirements that has been expanding since uh, 1970, and in the way more recently of the customer due diligence rule that the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network started to apply in May of 2018. And indeed, legislation to make small businesses report their beneficial ownership was in many ways a reaction to the perceived compliance burden from placing customer due diligence requirements on financial institutions. So there's an, an implicit acknowledgement that there may be a serious compliance burden related to this kind of information collection. And the purpose of our panel is to explore what some of those costs that have been uh, not perhaps discussed enough uh, might be, and what the unintended consequences of a reporting regime might also be. And for that, I'm very happy that we have an expert uh, panel from very diverse backgrounds and indeed from diverse locations to discuss some of the very different and diverse angles that this issue has. To my immediate right is Karen Kerrigan. She is the president and CEO of the Small Business and Entrepreneurship Council, and uh, she regularly testifies before the Congress on key issues impacting entrepreneurs and the economy. And she was telling me that she was uh, just yesterday at the White House. Was it at the White House? Yeah, for, opportunities for the presentation opportunities. Yeah, also, Karen is all over yeah. the place defending small businesses and advocating for them. So thank you for being here. To Karen's right is Richard Hay. Uh, he is a partner at the international law firm Steigman Elliott. Um, he is also counsel to governments and financial institutions on a range of tax and regulatory policy programs, particularly those of an international nature, related to the UK, to the EU, the OECD, and the Financial Action Task Force, which is a very significant international body with regard to these issues. I'm very glad particularly to have Richard because he's based in London, but he happened to be on this side of the pond this week, so we were able to uh, get him for a few hours to uh, down to DC. And then finally, to uh, the far right, uh, of course, you know, just in terms of location, in no other way, is my friend David Burton. Uh, David's a senior fellow in economic policy at the Heritage Foundation, and he covers a very broad range of issues, tax matters, securities law, entrepreneurship, financial privacy, and other administrative law issues. And if you are familiar with this subject, and you haven't read David's extensive work on the matter already, I highly uh, commend it and recommend it to you. He has been one of the most uh, expert and, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, interested voices in the issues we're going to be discussing today. So thank you all for being here. Now, what I would like to start with is 
David, since you are since you have explored this issue in great depth, could you explain a little bit why it is that policy, some policymakers have called for a beneficial ownership reporting regime, and what some of the issues that you've identified with the current discussion draft are? Sure. Um, there have been a number of proposals uh, uh, to impose a beneficial ownership reporting regime in the United States, uh, both Democratic and Republican. They're all fairly similar. The most uh, recent version of it is the revised Corporate Transparency Act that was the subject matter of a hearing last month introduced by Representative Maloney. The one that sort of had legs last year was uh, uh, Representative Peer, former Representative Pierce's um, uh, legislation, Section 9 of which would have imposed a beneficial ownership reporting regime. So what do these things do? They basically t uh, say that in both of these cases, every corporation in LLC has to report on its beneficial ownership. Now, you may think that you know what an owner is, but by the time I get done, you'll, you'll be aware that owner doesn't mean what you think it means because they've so muddled the definition of owner, no one really knows what it means. But the idea is to identify who really owns a corporation. Um, so, uh, and the alleged reason for that is so they can chase terrorists or other criminal uh, behavior, um, I think that's probably one of the reasons, but it's not the real reason. Nonetheless, what, they, what this would do, uh, let's take the Corporate Transparency Act. When you form a corporation, you would have to report uh, on your beneficial ownership. Um, and then, and this is really important, after two years, every existing corporation or LLC would have to report on its beneficial ownership. And then, uh, what's a beneficial ownership, or beneficial owner? It's not what it would be for, say, securities law purposes. It's not what an owner would be for tax purposes. It's not the common sense definition of owner. They throw around words like substantial economic benefit, substantial control, and then they define them with other weasel words. So, <clears throat> in effect, no one really knows who has to report what. And if you don't really believe me, go read the bill. Uh, this is the discussion draft from that was the subject matter of the hearing. Or if you look at my background, or this, is, this discusses the Title Act, the Corporate Transparency Act of 2017, and also Section 9 of Pierce's um, illicit finance bill. They're all very similar. <clears throat> so, you know, what's substantial control? Well. Does that mean the person who really has control, i.e. The, the management? Probably. Does it mean, uh, what's a substantial economic benefit? Who knows? I mean, that could mean anything. Um, yet, if you don't get it right, you're a felon. Now, it may come as, actually, I suspect it comes as a surprise to no one in this room that your typical small business owner doesn't keep up to date with the latest fence and money laundering rules. But in point of fact, under this legislation or the Title Act or Pierce's bill, the only people subject to this regime at the end of the day are the smallest businesses in America, right? Because they exempt banks, they exempt insurance companies, they exempt broker-dealers, they exempt all public companies, they exempt any employer with more than 20 employees. Now, although not last time, 
They exempt tax-exempt organizations. So the only people actually subject to this extraordinarily complex reporting regime, and it's worse than I've made it sound yet when I get into some of the details, are the smallest businesses in America, right? The dry cleaners, the pizza parlors, the hardware stores. Now, you may say, well, why do we want to basically go after them? Well, the argument is that they're really going after shell companies, right? The problem is shell companies, a term that was invented by proponents of more government and uh, they, they're incapable of legally defining it, so basically they knife the smallest businesses in America. <clears throat> now, so these exemptions, however, are not self-effectuating, right? In other words, you're not exempt just because you're, say, a church, right, or a local charity. You have to know that you have to file and request an exemption from FinCEN. If you don't, you're a felon, right? subject to up to three years in prison and a fine of $10,000. Now, again, probably doesn't come as a surprise too many people in these rules, but your typical church treasurer or mosque treasurer or pastor or imam or synagogue treasurer doesn't keep up to date with fence and money laundering rules, right? But they will become a felon under this legislation if they don't request the exemption, right? Now, Citibank's gonna request the exemption. Right? But your typical church treasurer isn't. Or a pizza parlor with 21 employees who theoretically are exempt but may not know they have to do it. <clears throat> so then there's a number of cases where you get into sort of a Kafka-esque world where you're theoretically, well, theoretically is not the right term, you're legally, would be legally required to comply with this law, but compliance is literally impossible. So let's take an entrepreneur who has under 20 employees, his startup, right? And he has to comply with his rule. He has to report on his beneficial ownership when he originally forms his company annually and then within 60 days of any change in the beneficial ownership. So it's bureaucratically pretty monstrous. All right, so then he's successful. He gets a venture capital fund to invest in his company. Okay? Now, the venture capital fund is almost certainly exempt. Right? So they don't even have to report, and they don't even have to know their beneficial ownership. Right? But he, as the entrepreneur, is required to report on all his beneficial ownership under look-through rules. Right? So he has to get the VC's beneficial ownership, but the VC doesn't have to report, doesn't have to know who his beneficial ownership is, yet if the entrepreneur does not report on his beneficial ownership, he's a felon. Right? There's a whole host of things like that. The ambiguities associated with substantial control, substantial economic benefit, the look-through rules, which are a total mess. But there's more, all right? If you're a money launderer or a criminal and not a total idiot, it's so easy to get around this, it's not even amusing. It only applies to LLCs and corporations, right? There are plenty of other kind of business entities out there, the most obviously being a business trust, Right? which you can watch down to any, almost any, certainly Virginia and Maryland, and you just tick another box and say, I'm a business trust, instead of an LLC or a corporation. And suddenly, you're quite lawfully not required to comply with all this. So think about what we're doing to ourselves. We're imposing this massive administrative burden, creating millions of inadvertent felons out of church treasures and small business people to accomplish precisely nothing. 
It's one of the most poorly conceived pieces of legislation I've ever seen. And by the way, the millions is no exaggeration. There's roughly 12 million LLCs and corporations. The maths in this background are the, uh, and if you assume a 90% compliance rate, which is of course laughably optimistic, because again, most small business people don't read fence and money laundering rules. If you assume a 90% compliance rate, that still means you're gonna have 1.2 million inadvertent felons in this country who did nothing wrong other than no, not know they had to comply with his goofy fence-in rule, right? So, can you give yeah. us a sense of the, of the financial cost of complying with this? Because you had some estimates in your paper. Well, that's somewhat difficult, but the, the, um, it, it's going to be uh, well over a billion dollars uh, because you're gonna have to uh, hire lawyers or other compliance personnel uh, it's 12 million small businesses that have to actually fill out the forms, chase down their beneficial ownership. You have to get the driver's license or passport uh, information on anybody that owns anything in your company or exercises any degree of substantial control. So your management, your directors, your shareholders. And then, uh, of course, there's also the whole uh, question of are you exempt or not, and so on down the line. So between the lawyers the, and, and the consultants and, and reading the rules and internal compliance, and then to the extent they actually try to enforce this stuff, you know, defending yourself, it, it's going to be well over a billion dollars. A colleague of mine, Norbert Michelle, and I wrote a paper um, called uh, Financial Privacy in a Free Society, which actually put together the first quantitative estimates of the cost of the existing AML regime, which is a lot, anti-money laundering, which is allied with this. And we came up with a fairly decent number, uh, the best and only one that's been done so far by anybody. The government doesn't ever bother to do cost-benefit analysis on this stuff. It was four to eight billion annually just from the AML regime. And what, the basic way we did that is we took the OMB per Paperwork Reduction Act estimates, which in many cases is ridiculous. It assumes you can fill out a government form in two minutes, right? Mm -hmm. right? I mean, just absurdly low estimates by OMB. But we took them at face value and just monetized it at $40 an hour, and you come up with $4 billion, and then you ask yourself, well, how much is, do they have to spend to learn the rules and comply with them and so on and so forth? And we got, you know, to potentially as high as eight. Again, assuming these really low OMB estimates were right. So this is not play around costs. I mean, for those of you who maybe have some role in oversight, we've been going down this road now for about 30 years where the rules all get more and more uh, costly, more and more obtrusive, more and more <clears throat> difficult to comply with. Uh, and yet the government has never been forced to justify it in any kind of quantitative way. They've never, they, they've never had to uh, do a cost-benefit analysis. One has never been done by the United States government, to my knowledge, not by the Europeans either. Uh, basically, it basically consists of somebody from FinCEN coming up to the Hill and saying, trust me, we need more of this because terrorists are bad, right? Um, and, and in fact, Congressman Pierce basically said, don't you care about terrorism? Right? Well, the answer is, sure, I care about terrorism, but this bill will literally do nothing to get at terrorism. Let's get right? a, a um, hands-on view of the compliance cost here, because Karen, as, as David was describing, this bill as currently drafted would apply to firms with fewer than 20 employees 
and less than $5 million in gross receipts. And even though some shell companies may qualify under those uh, under, those ca under that category, it doesn't mean that most of the firms that fall under the category are at the target of this legislation or indeed any other anti-money laundering legislation. So can you give us a sense of what the type of business that's affected looks like and what sort of functions, I know you talk about the only operating office for these uh, firms, uh, what sort of, you know, what the, the awareness is of this legislation, what the cost might be? Um, yeah, and uh, good afternoon everyone, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, you know, I think uh, you know, the types of businesses, is, it's just really as diverse as the small business sector is itself. I mean, you're going to have businesses from you know, every single industry um, that will be impacted uh, by, this, um, uh, by this regulation or by this legislation. Um, I would say from an awareness perspective, um, there is no awareness. <laughs> You know of this uh, in the small business community, um, we like to think that our members, you know, read every detail in our Small Business Insider that we send out um, every week. That uh, you know gives them a heads up on potential threats um, and, and good stuff coming from Washington as well. Um, but there is very limited uh, awareness um, about this, um, obviously. And um, as you know, you said they are the only operating officer. They don't have a compliance officer, a chief financial officer, or human resource, um, you know, management type people. I mean, they really are, for the most part, um, particularly with firms of 20 employees or less, are doing it um, all them themselves, or you know, they're they're outsourcing, you know, some functions, maybe accounting and things like that. So. Um, you know, they're focused on running their businesses. Um, they're focused right now on trying to find, uh, you know, quality employees in a very tight labor market, taking advantage of expansion opportunities, providing health care. I mean, all the things that you need to do, you know, to keep the business going. So, um, you know, this will be quite the shocker, I think, um, you know, if something like this um, is enacted into law. I think particularly given, you know, where we've been over the past couple of years, which really has been more of a, um, a, a, a regulatory friendly, you know, type policy coming from Washington, D.C., regulatory relief, deregulatory thrust, um, you know, which has created more optimism, more confidence, and um, uh, and they'll, they'll be head scratching if something like this happens. I think particularly given, you know, they want to, don't want to know why is this happening to us, mm -hmm. you know, why, I mean, where is the data to show that quote-unquote shell companies or companies like us, you know, are in the U.S. are the terrorists, are the, you know, where, where money is being laundering, um, uh, uh, you know, to do a lot of bad things. So in terms of the cost, I mean, you know, David discussed some, I mean, there's always an underestimate, right, mm -hmm. of how much this stuff is going to, to cost. And, um, you know, given um, the severity of the penalties, um, the potential prison, um, uh, going to prison for, for something like this, uh, they're definitely going to be looking for experts, legal advice, people to help them fill out, you know, these forms or comply, you know, with, with the legislation. And that's not going to be cheap. That's going to be a lot of money. Um, and and then and it's not just a one-time thing once a year, you know. As David mentioned, if there is some type of change in address, right, or uh, any change in terms of the ownership, the, yeah. or, or the the identifying number, address, uh, percentage ownership, yeah. sixty all, days. So this is this is not just a one shot. Okay, we're do our taxes. And we're going to you know. Or this is something that's going to have to be monitored, you know, on an ongoing basis by 
you know, by these small business owners. So that's going to cost money. It's going to mean, you know, putting someone on this as opposed to growing the business or doing other innovation. I mean, all those other types of things. I'm, so, inter I'm interested in that. David mentioned about 12 million business organizations affected, most of which would be small businesses. Um, how do you anticipate that closures could happen, that this, there will be a chilling effect on business creation as a result of this? Because I imagine that some of these businesses have quite thin margins, right. which means that if you have to allocate some of your time and effort to this kind of stuff, it probably doesn't make sense for you to run your business in some cases anymore. I mean, for some, it might be for some of maybe you don't think of You know, I, I mean, I don't have data or numbers on that. But, you know, I will say on new business creation, startups, entrepreneurship in general, you know, it's been very weak over the past 15 or 20 years. In that period there, um, you know, where there are more businesses that were um, uh, uh, more businesses that were uh, leaving as opposed to starting. So, uh, but now we're, we're getting back to more, more businesses starting and closing. Um, in fact, if you look at the latest EIN, um, the Employment Identification Numbers of the IRS, there's been a huge spike in terms of applications for EIN. That means people are interested in starting businesses. I mean, it's huge, right? So. We're, we're sort of getting back to more robust levels of entrepreneurship and business formation. And, um, you know, for, some, for something like this, I mean, this is pretty, and, and of course, if you're going to start a business, there's weight risks involved, right? I mean, the market, competition, you're putting a lot of money on the line. Mm -hmm. This is a huge risk, right? And so it's like, oh, and there's this little thing, right. you know, where, you know, you have to report, first of all, it's going to cost you a lot of money. You're going to have to report this stuff. If you get it wrong, you know, you're going to end up, or, or $10,000 in fine. I mean, that is a, a, a pretty big risk, you know, for someone that's looking to, to start a business. Well, we've talked a lot, a lot about the cost, and I'm interested now in the potential benefits from complying with this. And, you know, obviously, the benefits are always nebulous, but we're lucky in the U.S. in that we have evidence from other countries in how these beneficial ownership reporting, particularly self-reporting requirements, which is a very important distinction, have fared. And Richard, you've been following particularly the register in the United Kingdom closely over the last few years, what's called the Persons with Significant Control uh, Database. And I'm interested in knowing what the results have been there, what some of the already preliminary evidence we have is, uh, and you can mention cost as well if you like. Okay. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, uh, Diego. Um, tracking corporate ownership is a big priority for crime and law enforcement, tax enforcement, so I understand the imperative behind that. Um, and I think compared to international uh, activity, the Maloney Bill has a lot to commend it. I would say that uh, the notion of um, tracking beneficial ownership is a simple, seems like a simple and appealing idea. We know that companies sometimes get involved in crime and we want the people establishing them to report who's behind them so that if the company commits crime, then we know who did it. Uh, the problem is, of course, uh, in the real world context uh, where we're relying on criminals to self-report because obviously that's the constituency we're interested in. The compliant don't really interest us. Um, these are not law-abiding people. Now, maybe American criminals are better behaved in the riffraff elsewhere, but you know there's maybe reasons to doubt that. Um, so you're going to assemble a lot of data that may not be particularly useful to you. I think European experience suggests that the key thing is verification. If you've got a third party involved in the process, 
that stands between the individual and getting the corporation who goes to the trouble of checking name, rank, and serial number before they get the company, and that person is unlikely. They're running a business. They're unlikely to put themselves at risk of jail or substantial fines in order to help uh, a possible criminal uh, establish a company. Um, you know, that acts as a break on this kind of activity. Um, as to options for uh, verification, the Maloney Bill notes that the 28 European states are subject to an obligation to have corporate service providers uh, conduct verification. And again, it's a good idea in principle, but you need to have some government intervention into that process where they check occasionally. Otherwise, you start to recognize the system really has no policing function. You can do this in a place like Cayman Islands or Bermuda when the corporate service providers, none of them are more than 15 minutes away from the corporate registrar's office. Uh, in the United States, where you're going to have a centrally administered system in Washington and you've got corporate service providers from New Mexico to uh, Alaska, this is a much more difficult task. I mean, the government supervision of all of these individuals is difficult. And in the United Kingdom, we see that corporate registrars have this passive archival mentality. They're not really endowed with an army that allows them to go out and check to see if the information you reported is actually true. And once the criminal constituency figures this out, and they did pretty early in the game when the United Kingdom announced they don't have the resources or intention to actually check behind the reported amounts. I mean, they've got three million companies and looking for ones where beneficial ownership is wrongly reported is obviously quite a big job. So Richard, um, you were hinting at the fact that good intentions do not equal good outcomes, which is something we repeat constantly in policy discussions, but it sometimes doesn't seem to transcend as much as we would like it to. Um, but I'm, I'm particularly interested in this issue of getting the compliance cost on the lawful well-intentioned, law-abiding businesses who then register themselves on this register. And it should be noted that in the UK, the register is also public. So there are incentive issues there as well. While letting, whether through a loophole in the way that David was pointing out with trusts, or um, in other ways, uh, allowing for the wrongdoers to very easily escape this review because they have no interest. I mean, you know, it's the least of their worries whether they'll be subject to a $10,000 fine for not reporting beneficial ownership. So what's the experience that there in the UK? Because I know there have been some reports on this. Well, first of all, you have to remember that a register that's mostly right probably isn't that useful because it's the compliant who are there. And the constituency you're interested in are, in are the criminals. So if one in a hundred or one in a thousand uh, companies is not accurately reported, that's probably the ones with the criminal constituency that are hiding it. So a register that's mostly right doesn't amount to much that's very useful to law enforcement. I mean, they're not, the law enforcement mentality is they're not going to a self-reported database uh, from criminals in order to, you know, order to work out who owns it. It's just not, from the, from the law enforcement perspective, particularly useful. And it is, as David says, a very costly exercise. There hasn't been much work done to evaluate cost-benefit analysis. Uh, before the UK implemented their register, they did do a, an impact assessment, and they did try to make an estimate of costs. They estimated uh, about 1.4 billion as the total cost uh, for the project US. Um, 
and but this was based on estimates of twelve dollars for uh, individual uh, reports, which seems quite optimistic. This means people need to digest the legislation, understand what it means, and in the in the there's a big difference between legal ownership, which is pretty straightforward, and ultimate beneficial ownership, which, as David noted, depends on a lot of tests that are much more fuzzy in character. I mean, you go through and you look at the ultimate individual who owns it, and how do we define that? I mean, it's uh, substantial economic interest or indicia of control and that sort of thing. It's very hard for people to evaluate it. So the cost which David indicated of five to eight billion in the U.S. context is looks quite uh, rational in the context of the work that's been done in the United Kingdom population there being about a quarter of what it is in the U.S. So it's, it's a very costly uh, system to run. And of course, if you've got any complexity in the ownership, maybe you've got trusts on top or partnerships or uh, funds, uh, maybe you've got syndicated property investments with a number of external investors. I mean, the, the, note, the simple notion that we just go to the company and ask them who owns it um, you know, it can get considerably more complicated than that. Indeed, I went to UK authorities and I had the time records of a corporate service provider who was trying to identify the ultimate beneficial owners of a syndicated property investment, and they had 21 hours with the full cooperation of the client to try and work out who in the structure above they should be identifying as beneficial owners. So, in practice, it's a much more difficult job than it might seem. I know a lot of, and I'm sure Karen uh, will agree with this, a lot of small businesses would be happy to find themselves a lawyer or compliance officer who will charge per hour when the government assumes it's cost-benefit <laughs> analysis. I know both Rich, Richard, and, Richard and David are conflicted because they're both attorneys. Um, David, I'm trying to put how useful it. is the information that's collected even for prosecutions? Do we have any idea? Because the assumption is well, that the information is useful, will be used in potential criminal proceedings. How, how useful is it to law enforcement? I, I don't think this information in the, in the Corporate Transparency Act or the Pierce predecessor will catch anybody. It's too easy to evade. I mean, the, the, the people that they say they're trying to chase would have to be mental midgets to get caught by it. Right? Uh, but let me, I, I, there's one other thing I wanted to, to add. Uh, there, there is a solution here. Uh, that, that I talk about in, in my background here. And because uh, more information than they're actually seeking and more reliable information is already collected by the federal government. And it's sitting on IRS computers. Okay? So you can get better, more comprehensive information without posing this monstrous edifice on uh, small businesses in America. For those of you who know any, you know, have the misfortune of knowing about our tax system, there are so-called pass-through entities, which would be S corporations, partnerships, LLCs. Right? They all are obligated and and have to report one once a year on their K ones, their owners. Right? Uh, and then, for purposes of C corporations, uh, any C corporation that pays a dividend is currently re required to report who they paid the dividend to on the 1099 divs, right? So the, and that applies to all entities of any type whatsoever 
rather than having these gaping holes you can drive trucks through, like in, in all these bills. Right? The only hole in, in that, uh, and, you can, and you can do tiered look-throughs because if there's tiered pass-throughs, you just look at one pass-through, look at the next, look at the next. It's all sitting there on, on the K-1s, all right? right? And the only gap is C-corporations that don't pay any dividends, right? So if you wanted to require C-corporations who don't pay dividends to report on their owners, you could do it. And then you'd have an absolutely comprehensive thing. The only thing we need to do to make this happen is amend 6103 of the Internal Revenue Code, which is the privacy provisions. Now, I would encourage all of you to Google 26 U.S.C. 6103, which, and I'll bring it up. You'll see that there's already literally about 40 exceptions to the, to the uh, privacy provisions in the uh, Internal Revenue Code, one of which is law enforcement provision. We just need to slightly tweak that so that FENCEN can look at the beneficial ownership database currently sitting at the IRS. Um, and then we don't have to impose these massive costs. So you say, well, why isn't this happening? It's a, such a simple solution. There are two reasons. One, I don't think the real reason why they want this is to chase terrorists and criminals. I think the real reason that they want this in the long run is so that it'll be a public database like it is in the UK, like it would have originally been under last year's Maloney bill because it would have been a state database and state uh, uh, corporate records are open. I think their objective is to allow uh, public access to this information so that political pressure can be put on, on the owners of various businesses. Um, the second reason that it's not happening is the Ways and Means Committee doesn't care about this. Uh, the, the, all of the members pushing this approach are on uh, House Financial Services or banking and not on Ways and Means or finance. So basically, we're going to impose billions of dollars of costs on small businesses, make a million or more inadvertent felons out of church treasures and small businesses because of a jurisdictional dispute in the United States Congress. I mean, think about how absurd that is. I know uh, that, um, you know, when I talk to banks and I discuss bank secrecy with banks fairly regularly, um, they, some of them are favorable to this bill because mm -hmm. they think that it will remove some of the mm -hmm. regulatory burden on them, notably from the customer due diligence rule that, was, um, that, that came into force in May last year. Uh, but David, is it actually the case that, they are off, that banks are off the hook thanks to this? No, the CDD rule is still in place. I mean, that was one of the original motivations for this, was the banks were playing a bank shot. They said, well, okay, we'll, we'll support this uh, beneficial ownership reporting regime uh, and use that as a reason why we don't have to have the fence and CDD rule take effect. Now, this fence and CDD rule, Back up one second. What that rule does is every time somebody comes, every time an entity comes in to open up a bank account, the bank is required to do certain due diligence, uh, take certain due diligence steps to verify who actually controls and owns the company. Those rules took effect, I think, May 19th, if I remember correctly. And anyway, so they're in place. They're being enforced. Right? And that's also one of the reasons why this is sort of you know, off the charts absurd. We already have a, a CDD rule. Anybody who opens a bank account now has to uh, uh, provide all this information to the bank, and that in turn generates literally 15 million SARS a year and so on down the line. So why are, are we doing this? I mean, it's just one of the most 
you know, a lot of you guys don't know me, but I don't routinely say that a bill is among the most worst thought out pieces of legislation I've ever seen. And this really is. It's that bad. I've, I've, yeah, I can, I, can, uh, I can confirm David's animosity toward this. It's, it's, not, it's not just the weather or something. Richard, um, what are some of the perverse ways in which this information might be used by third parties? If you have a public register or even a private register that hackers can have or cybersecurity experts can, uh, you know, ill-intentioned cybersecurity experts can use to their advantage, um, what sort of things could they do with it? Could they, could they go after people? Could they, you know, potentially, if you live in a dangerous jurisdiction, use it to kidnap people or do things like that? Well, of course, interestingly, in the United Kingdom, we're beyond this argument because government mandates that it be public. So we're not worried about data hackers. We just want to make it easy for them, give it away to everybody. Uh, but what's happened in the United Kingdom is that um, as soon as you create a public database, the data aggregators move in. They live in the corporate offices. They harvest this data every day. They uh, integrate this data with a lot of other information they might have, the address of the person, their family connections, uh, social security numbers, maybe their health records, and uh, they integrate all of this in an electronically searchable database, and they'll sell it to anyone who's prepared to pay for it. So, you know, the database is available to criminals. You're thinking about action against somebody, then uh, this date type of database would be very useful. Now, you know, kidnapping and extortion, this doesn't happen too often in this country, fortunately, but there's many other countries uh, where the government has much less effective control over criminal elements. I mean, I don't mean to... Or, or they're actively part of it. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I love Mexico, and I go to Latin America quite regularly, but... Uh, most people in Mexico, if they're in prominent families, they know others who uh, have had children kidnapped, etc. They wait by the school gate. They've got this information. They pick them up. They uh, try to extort money from the family. The family says, oh, we don't have that money. You know, when they've got this type of record, it's quite useful. So that, that's sort of one issue with access to the database. Uh, the other thing, the, the other uh, problematic area is there's quite a bit of in, increasing, of course, across society, identity fraud. And in the United Kingdom, interestingly enough, identity fraud for those who show up in the corporate register of directors, uh, you know, historically and now shareholders, uh, because of the additional information that's available there, they tend to have identity fraud exposures about four times as frequently as the general public. So, uh, you know, this does expose people to uh, additional criminal activity. I mean, there's the ideological dimension, but even if you, about whether you should make private property a matter of public access. And I think you need to bear in mind that since every significant asset uh, from the corner store to the power station, pretty much comprehensively, apart from people's private homes, m more or less everything is held in corporate form. If you create a public database, you're effectively creating a public database of property ownership. Right. Yeah. Karen, I'm going to give you the last word later, but I want to make sure that we are answering also the, the audience's questions. So are there any uh, questions you would like to address to? Uh, one of our speakers, or all of our speakers, uh, please speak out, identify yourself, and uh, phrase your comment as a question, and your question as a question. 
Any? I actually have a question. My yes, name is Mia, and I'm with the National Association of Realtors. I wanted to know, could you currently? Thank you. Can you speak to um, currently how this data is used that is submitted to FinCEN? Because right now, FinCEN, pretty much um, when there's any information submitted to them, it is a private database. And so um, with the legislation, there is no, I guess there's currently no protection around how we protect this particular data, but it would not be under the proposal, as my understanding, be public information. Is that accurate? Under the latest version, it, it would be given defense and therefore private, or in other words, right. not open to the public. And only for uh, law on, enforcement or under subpoena can it be? Yeah, but, but under the previous version uh, of, of this, uh, it, it was in effect collected by the various state corporation divisions or secretaries of state. I mean, it's different in every state. And, the, and I believe in all but three or four of those, those records are there, would have therefore been public. Okay. Uh, because they've changed this to being fencing only, primarily because the states didn't want to get involved in it. Right? And the state secretary of state association uh, there's a citation in my paper, sent a letter saying, we don't want to do this. Uh, so now it's all federal, as, as was the case under the Pierce proposal. And uh, it presumably will be protected and kept private. So. Just, I mean, one, one thing to clarify here as well is that it's often said in discussions here that this is international practice, international standard. Um, but in fact, the Financial Action Task Force says nothing about making the data public. It says mm -hmm. beneficial ownership information should be collected in some way or form. David just argued how it might be done with uh, least compliance costs. Uh, but the publicness of a register, there hasn't really been an explanation given for why this, this information should have been public, right, Richard? Well, that's correct. Um, I mean, it's a long-standing requirement from FATF that you track beneficial ownership. and. Um, to be honest, I think the reason why the United Kingdom did it is because it's a cheap way to do it, at least from the public sector point of view. You just impose an obligation to self-report on the population, and that cost estimate I referred to of $1.3 in that same estimate, they estimated government costs for doing this, and the government costs were estimated at $2 million, uh, about $2.5 million. Uh, and this was the all-in cost for establishing and running the system, which is why the corporate registrar said, you know, we really can't uh, track this. Now, the United Kingdom wanted to be seen to be leading the world in this policy area, so they lobbied FATF to include a reference to um, central registers as a means of doing it. But uh, well, I, I, kn I know that... Uh, uh, Privately, the, uh, the FATF described this to UK government officials as a publicity stunt because they didn't expect criminals to self-report accurately. I, I don't think part of, part of the political push for this isn't uh, tax or criminal. And I mean, it's totally ineffective for those purposes, but it's they want public databases, which is how the Corporate Transparency Act was last Congress, how the British system is, so they can put political pressure on people. Right? And another uh, ex or, uh, uh, example of that is what the, the push for disclosure of trade association, charitable and political giving by corporations at the SEC. 
right? What, what, why are these various interest groups pushing so hard for that? That's because so they can go after the corporation if they give to charities or interest groups that they don't approve of, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and there's plenty of examples of, of businesses and their owners being targeted if they give to charities that uh, they don't approve of. Uh, probably the most prominent example is ALEC. ALEC's basically a group of free market oriented state legislators, libertarians and conservatives. And uh, they, the businesses that gave to ALEC were, were targeted. And this will become commonplace and universal. Any other questions? Yes, please, Dr. I'm Larson Frisbee from the American Bar Association. Uh, so one of the uh, uh, interesting differences that we saw in the change uh, from last year's Pierce bill to the current Maloney bill is under the Pierce bill, it seemed to require a criminal subpoena before law enforcement could obtain access to the information, while in the new bill, it seems to only require a request, and it seems to have expanded without a subpoena. And it seems to have expanded the types of governmental entities that will be given access to the information. And it now includes not just federal, but also state, territorial, and, and foreign governments, seemingly just upon request, as well as, as financial institutions with, with consumer consent. So my question is, does that expanding the universe of types of government agencies that can obtain it and lowering the requirement for them to obtain it uh, cause you any privacy concerns and does the and does making it accessible to financial institutions with customer consent really amount to a limitation given that banks will probably require all their customers to agree to consent as part of their standard account agreements couple things first off I haven't crosswalked Pierce in this bill discussion draft with respect to the subpoena thing, so I'm not positive. But clearly they expanded which governments can look at it, including tribal and foreign governments like you identified. Uh, I think the uh, consumer uh, request uh, or, uh, or not request, uh, consumer uh, uh, acknowledgement is similar to what is done with respect to tax returns now. I mean, for those of you who have refinanced your mortgage or something, you have to sign, so then the IRS will send your tax return to the bank. This is, I think, probably going to be a similar process. And it is somewhat problematic, but at least the person is uh, agreeing to it, and they don't have to, although they may have to practically in the real world. Right? But in terms of uh, the information sharing, I mean, this is bad. And, and is, is uh, really uh, an, uh, uh, an infringement on the financial privacy of individuals and businesses throughout the country. But it's not as bad as what's before the United States Senate right now. Right now there's a treaty called the, the Protocol Amending the uh, Multilateral Convention on Mutual Administrative Assistance in Tax Matters, right? Which would require U.S. financial institutions to bulk share information on your brokerage accounts, your bank accounts, and, and also your insurance accounts, variable annuities and things like that, uh, as to how much income you have, what assets you hold, your tax number, your passport number, and do bulk data sharing 
with every participating government, which includes such notable law-abiding governments as the Russian government, the Chinese government, the Colombian government, the Pakistani government, the Nigerian government. Now, what are the problems with all that? You're providing all this bulk financial information to governments that are hostile to the United States, who have a long history of working arm in arm with organized crime. Many of the, many of the developing countries, even if they were honest, don't have good protection of their data, just in terms of IT security, right? And and then in places like Colombia, where you talked about kidnapping, well, I mean, it's like a, a to-do list that the United States government is going to provide to these corrupt governments throughout the world, right? And that's in the Senate, being considered, been reported out of the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee favorably, right? It's there's a lot of really poorly thought out stuff being done right now. The only I reason you that. Yourself a new worst bill you've ever seen, David. No, that's a treaty, <laughs> not a bill. And, and, and point of fact, it has not been agreed to by the full Senate because there's been a hold put on it uh, by a number of senators um, that, that realize that this is problematic. Karen. Um, you've worked a lot with the with current administration and various agencies, and you know I'm sure you meet with legislators to try and push a regulatory agenda that works, that helps business creation and dynamism and so on. And now, how much of a conflict do you see in this particular initiative, and in general, some of the bills that you see uh, coming out with that agenda? Because it's been one of the victories of the last few years that we have business creation up and startup creation turnover is coming up and so on. Right. Do you have any comments on that? Uh, you mean in terms of this bill? Where yeah, do you think it's representative of a general trend or do you think this is an aberration? Oh, I, it should be... oh, I definitely think I mean, it's an aberration for sure in terms of what we've seen in the last couple of years. And, um, you know, it's interesting because I, um, you know, I, I, I went, the hearing where this bill was being discussed, I read a lot of the testimony and I, you know, sort of flipping through all of it. And uh, the expert witnesses, I mean, the, the challenges that they said were, you know, the problem in terms of going after the bad guy and addressing financial uh, crimes um, have nothing to do with small businesses, you know, these small entities. I think one person who may have brought it up, a former FBI guy, said, oh, yeah, we've got to do something about this, right? But, he, but there was no data to show that this was a problem. Mm -hmm. So the, the issues that were being brought up was just like, gosh, there's a lot of data that's being produced by these, um, these SARs, right? These uh, suspicious activity reports, over mm -hmm. 2 million of these. But only 5% of them actually show value. And mm -hmm. It cost billions and billions of dollars for the private sector, and still 99% of um, uh, you know, crime across the globe, or, or um, uh, global financial crimes, are missed, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not about you know the, the small guys. I mean, maybe shell companies in Ukraine and Russia, you know, are a problem, but not uh, in the U.S. So I definitely think that this is sort of. I mean, it it's unique in, in terms of how it stands out because generally when a regulation comes out or legislation is introduced, we're always saying, oh, they forgot about the small people in this. You know, they, we we have to tell them about the unintended consequences and the or an energy consequences. We'll say, well, gee. You know, um, you know, 8% you know, of the businesses in the energy sector are small businesses, so you have to think about the impact of them, or you have to think about the unintended consequences or access to capital or the cost of things. But here, yeah, this is directly aimed you know, at US you know, small businesses. And again, there's nothing out there that I've seen, and I've looked a lot, 
that are said this is a big problem, you know, in terms of small businesses in the U.S. And, you know, I agree. And the other uh, issue that was brought up is, again, information sharing with agencies. I mean, David's right. The IRS collects so much of this stuff. Um, and then I think of, as of May 13th, they're also going to be collecting the responsible party. Um, they have to provide their... Um, your social security number or their ITIN number, you know, um, in order to, uh, you know, to get an EIN. So you can't be an EIN to get an EIN. You have to be the responsible. So there's things that are they're already collecting. I think that will very be very very useful in terms of um, providing, you know, sort of. But again, FinCEN and all these agencies too. They say, well, we don't have the human capital. We don't have the skilled people that can go through this right. stuff. Well, why are we producing it then? Yeah. And from small businesses, um, you know, who are not part of the the problem um, in the first place. So It looks good because the fiscal cost is very low, but then of course the cost has just been transferred to people who are not taking it into consideration. Right. Well, I mean, it's the same thing with a lot of issues, yeah. right? So no, let, let small businesses be the immigration police because we have a problem. Let them be, right. um, you know, so it is, but it's going to have an impact um, on, you know, obviously on small business costs, small business competitiveness, definitely startup and business creation. I mean, this would be a huge problem. Um, so. And you, you're right in terms of the small business representation. I was at a conference call the other day talking about a new small business office at an agency. And at one point, one, someone in the conference call asked, well, how many people who are involved with this new uh, office have ever run or been part of a small business? And the answer came through very feebly from the phone, 0%. And uh, I thought that was you know, quite an interesting anecdote yeah. to tell. You know, it, it, is, it is sometimes the case that a lot of us, you know, that includes myself, who talk about a lot of these issues, haven't faced them. We sort of are aware from evidence and anecdote and so on, but it's an important consideration to keep in mind in terms of intellectual humility about it. Right, and again, at least with legislation or some type of regulation, there's always some rationale as weak as it might be, you know, for trying, but, you know, in terms of targeting, you know, small businesses, LLCs, s I mean, there's corporations, I just, you know, there's just nothing out there that uh, demonstrates at this point that this is a, this is a problem. So, uh, let me just summarize. We have, we have to wrap up so okay. we don't want to keep our... It's brief. It's okay. funny, though. Okay. I mean, at least it was to me. I was debating this issue, and here's the summary of the argument for it. Terrorism and organized crime is bad. We need to do something to stop terrorism. This is something. Therefore, we should do it. I think I saw that, a softbox sketch. Yeah, that well, that, that was in a, a, a federal society debate I had on this with, with a, a guy from AEI. But that's the sum total of the argument for it. This is something, and we need to do something. It's not really very well thought out. Well, this beneficial ownership reporting discussion has been beneficial. Um, so thank you for the great turnout. Thanks for attending, and I hope this was informative to you. You have plenty of reading material now, but feel free to reach out to us. Yeah, and if you want, I have copies of this paper. Background and everything, very, very highly recommend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor.